Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Hello, I'm Peter King. Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King, where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, conversation with the defensive hero of Super Bowl 52, defensive end Brandon Graham of the Philadelphia Eagles, and also a conversation and sort of a career retrospective with one of my favorite people in football, Bob Angelo of NFL Films. Angelo, after a 43-year career with NFL Films, shot his last game on Super Bowl Sunday and we will relive some of his most interesting moments from a real insider's career. But first, I'm going to be joined by Jenny Varentis of the MMQB. Um, and uh, she has written a really good story about Brandon Graham. That's one of the reasons why I wanted her here in the studio today. Uh, but also, I thought before we started off uh, talking to Graham, um, I, I would... Uh, have a quick conversation with Jenny about, uh, you know, since the Super Bowl is already 10 days in our rearview mirror, we don't want to obsess too much about that, although I did sort of jump at the chance to get Brandon Graham on. I wanted to talk about a couple of things that Jenny and I see as sort of the big stories of the off offseason. Um, I'll start first, and then I'll bring Jenny in. Um I think one of the things I'm really looking forward to in the NFL, uh, I remember a long time ago, Jerry Glanville, uh, the old coach, uh, was caught by an NFL Films uh, wiring uh, saying to the saying to an official after a call he disagreed with, you know what NFL stands for? Not for long if you keep making calls like that. And I've always thought of the NFL as a not for long league. You know, the average career is only 3.2 years. That's obviously heavily weighted by people who only last a year. But it is a career for the young. It is a league for the young. And so constantly, Jenny and I, when we go out every year, we're meeting people who are brand new. Um, I'm just totally fascinated by what will happen this year. Who will draft Baker Mayfield? Uh, what teams will say about Baker Mayfield. So he is, in my opinion, the big story of this offseason. Um, just to brief some of you who don't know all that much about him, Baker Mayfield is this year's Heisman Trophy winner. He's a six foot tall quarterback for Oklahoma. Maybe he's six foot and a quarter, maybe he's 5'11 and a half, I don't know. But there's going to be a lot of attention paid to, to Baker Mayfield. 
He's an absolute field general. He is what I would call sort of a clean Johnny Manziel. At least I think he's clean. Um, But he's going to be under the microscope starting later this month at the NFL Scouting Combine. And he is a brash, uh, outspoken, uh, fiery, really fun-to-watch player. And I just wonder whether whether teams are going to look at him as sort of the second coming of Russell Wilson or maybe the second coming of Johnny Manziel. I don't know. Um, but I'll be fascinated to see it. And in my opinion, we're doing a long series uh, at our website, the MMQB. Uh, Robert Klemko is going to cover uh, Baker Mayfield between now and the draft and write about him every week. And, you know, I told... Uh, Robert, when he uh, when we talked about this assignment, I said, hey, go wherever the story goes. I don't know what the story is going to be. We'll see. But he is a blank canvas now with many people in the NFL who are fascinated with him. And I'm just interested to see how high he goes in the draft, what teams trash him, what teams love him. Uh, and I think it's going to be a really, really interesting thing between now in April 26, which is the first night of the NFL draft. Jenny, I've droned on for a long time. Give me your, uh, your the story you're really looking forward to this offseason. Well, I'm not sure if it's looking forward to because it's been talked about ad nauseum for the last week, but I think last few weeks, but I think the you know the biggest story of the offseason is sort of what the, the next steps are for the Patriots dynasty, right? I mean, we, there's been so much speculation ever since Seth Wickersham's report in ESPN. A lot of those issues were meant to be dealt with in the offseason. So now they're facing a lot of questions about the futures of Brady, Belichick, and it's unlikely we're going to get clear answers, right? The way they keep everything close to the vest. But, you know, uh, what do they do with Brady's contract? He has two more years. Do they give him an extension, if if only just to reduce the cap hit? Um, do they draft a quarterback that will be his successor now that they have none with Jimmy Garoppolo you know, having been traded? Um, so I just think they, they're facing a lot of questions that they would have with a win in the Super Bowl or with a loss. But I think the loss sort of puts them into a little bit sharper perspective of how many times will they, how many more times will they have a chance to win a, uh, a championship together? Um, and, you know, how are they going to fix some of the things that kind of cracked the foundation a little bit, at least it appeared to be from the outside? You know, what's so interesting about the Patriots, and we'll get to our, our, our conversations, but what I find so interesting is that, so Tom Brady doesn't talk in the offseason, really, I mean, very much. Uh, Bill Belichick doesn't talk, and yet they are... Uh, the, they are, I mean, if you look in in the uh, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, uh, the New England newspapers, people are writing about them every day. You know, and it's it, no matter how much they try to say, can we just have an off season? There just isn't one with the Patriots, even though you never get any utterances out of them. And I totally agree with you. I think that now that they have Josh McDaniels back as their offensive coordinator, um, and I believe there's a good chance they'll be able to keep Dante Skarnecchia for another year. They're a great offensive line coach. You know, they might be able to rev, it, rev up the engine and make one more Super Bowl run. I really thought when we saw them trudge off the field in Minneapolis uh, after the 41-33 loss in the Super Bowl, I thought this was it for them. I really, really did. 
but obviously it isn't. Um, so those are some good thoughts uh, uh, on the Patriots, Jenny. And now our conversation with Brandon Graham. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, I'm joined by Jenny Varentis of the MMQB uh, to basically carry this conversation with Brandon Graham of the Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles. Brandon, really appreciate you joining me. Um, my my first question is, what in the world were you thinking when Jason Kelsey is up there trashing half the planet and praising the other half of the planet um, and going on one of the great riffs in Super Bowl speech history? Oh, it, that's, it's been a long time coming for that speech, and I'm just happy that uh, he was able to you know, say everything he felt and, um, you know, in a, in a great way. And we all want him to back him and, you know, be there for him. It's really a close team, isn't it? To people on the outside world, why is this team so close? Um, it's just because everybody, uh, the personalities gel well. And um, I think uh, everybody just wants to win. And, you know, I think we we all, um, you know, just it's just a good good fit of guys uh and that's all i can really say i mean because it's, it's just a really good fit and they brought in some good guys and we all you know really like each other brandy you've had an incredible uh you know incredible uh uh run to this moment uh your eight years in the nfl and but i i want to focus on one moment um in this game uh and ask you basically about your rush that led to the Tom Brady strip sack. And and first, ask you, was it a frustrating time for you guys that Brady was getting the ball out so quick for three and a half quarters and you guys couldn't get to him? Uh, it's, it, it's frustrating. It's very frustrating sometimes. Uh, but that's, what the, that's the game you got to play with yourself. You got to keep telling yourself, hey, you got to keep coming because something's going to open up. I know he's not letting us uh, get to him because he's getting the ball off fast, but it's going to be a time in there where he's going to have to hold the ball and we got to make sure we take advantage of it. And, um, you know, and that's what we did. Uh, and, that, and that rush that I had, I, um, I knew I'd been setting him up with bull rushing, bull rushing the whole game. And I finally went speed and I was able to, you know, come around that corner, see the ball, hit the ball. And, you know, Derek Barnett, it bounced perfect, like right off him and right to his hands. And, you know, that the rest was, was history. You know, I, I'm very curious about this because when I watched this replay, I said, he's getting held. Uh, and and I, I don't know, did you feel that, that Shaq Mason had sort of hooked you, and did you think there might be a flag? Um. Well, I think he did grab my arm, but, you know, I was able to get one, my outside arm free, but we always practice and practice anyway, and I was just happy to be able to, you know, get around him because um, it, it kind of helped me the way he hooked me to pull me back uh, inside and, um, you know, put my arm in and, and swipe at the ball. So it actually kind of helped me a little bit. You know, you're a guy who went to Michigan. When you went to Michigan, Tom Brady was already a three-time Super Bowl champion. So you you grew up sort of with the, uh, you know, with Brady being a big guy in your life anyway because you're a Michigan guy. So – what was it like that it was Brady? Man, it was, I, all I kept saying was my first Super Bowl, my first championship ever in my career, period, uh, at, at any level, was uh, the Super Bowl. And to go against Brady, it's, it's, and, if, and if we win, 
man, it's, it's, it, nobody can take that away because you went against the best. And can't nobody say, oh, you know, you ain't go against Tom Brady or, you know, these guys. We went against the one who everybody kind of feared. And, you know, we, we got it done. And I was just happy because he went to Michigan and we grew up watching him. And, you know, we got it done. Uh, Brandon, I, I've got my, my partner at the MMQB, Jenny Varentis, here, and she stopped at Crockett Tech in Detroit, your alma mater, uh, on, on her way out to the Super Bowl and wrote a story on you. I'm going to have her ask you a couple of questions about your upbringing because you look at that field that you once played on, you say, how in the world did anybody come from that, never mind anybody who ended up playing in a Super Bowl? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, we called it the dust ball. Yeah. It was like half grass here, like patches of grass here. Then you look look like it's a little sand slash dirt. And, you know, it just gets real dusty as we, you know, continue to play on it. Like on a good hot day, you know, the dust kind of kind of come up, you know, as we running on there. We called it the dust ball. And, you know, we, we appreciated that because it, it made us hungry and it, and, it, and it had us not take anything for granted because, you know, we, we know – that uh, no matter what, it's football. No matter what we play, we just got to go out there. And we gotta, we gotta make our situations better by how we, how we win and how we play. And I think we did. We had a good group then uh, when I played at Crockett. Yeah, we we saw the field and we we posted it on Instagram and you actually saw the photo and replied to it, which which we appreciated. But yeah, I mean, part of the field's covered by a velodrome now, but what's left of it? I mean, your coaches were saying there was, you know, a cement stand where a pole once stood and they would try to cover it up with dirt so no one would fall on it and and there were no bleachers or lights. You know, parents would shine the the headlights on the field. You guys changed in the basement of a a nearby elementary school. So I mean, you know, how did that shape kind of the underdog mentality that you play? with today uh, it, just let, it lets me know like I came from I came from the worst facilities and you know but we well, we cherish them because it was our facilities and you know it, don't, it didn't matter uh, we, we, we had that chip on our shoulder because nobody gave us a shot nobody wanted us you know to, uh, to win and they, they didn't help us you know get anything new we just had to work with what we had and I'm just happy because of the guys that we had you know really really believe that like let's let's take advantage of this we still got weight rooms it might not be stated our weight but we still got a weight room we got to get get better in and we still got a field that we can play on that we can call our home even if it's not in a good as good condition it's a benefit for us because when people come to our home game you know what i'm saying then they're gonna look at our field and, and, and complain about it but we already know what it's about and we know how to how to win on it and i think uh you know it just it, it helped me out uh and really appreciate when I got to Michigan, because Michigan facilities is is a is wild, is a wild, you know. And for me, I just having what I had before, it, it always reminded me like this is where you could go back to if you don't take advantage of what you have. And I think that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, and one thing your coaches said that that stuck with me. They said when you were lining up against the Patriots in the Super Bowl, they could see you having the same mentality that you had playing King or Cast Tech, some of the other Detroit schools that had more resources and were more established. And they felt like they that you'd have that same mentality in the trenches. I don't know when you were going up against Brady and this this Patriots dynasty. Did any of that? Any of you draw on on you know your roots? Oh yeah. And I thought about that. I mean, that's that's good that, you know, that came up because that's exactly how I thought about it. Like, nobody give us a shot. Nobody, 
nobody believes in us. Um, we're like the little school, like you say, King or Cass is like the big schools everybody want to go to and be a part of. And, you know, we just nothing. Like, you know, we get the rejects. We get the ones that can't get accepted in those schools. And, you know, we made it We made it work with, with what we had. And then we had a bunch of guys believing in each other, uh, really put that tip on their shoulder, you know, being that underdog and, and, go, and wanting to go out there and prove that they belong just like uh, the coaches belong. What sort of dreams did you have in those days, Brandon? Could Was it even possible for you to think that you might one day play in the NFL or not? Uh, it was possible. I just, well, during those times, I always used to just say, man, if I can get myself in college, I got myself a shot. If I can get a full ride because I know my mom can't afford to pay for me, you know, to go to college, I can I can get my full shot. And I say, if I ever get my opportunity to go to a, a D1 school, you know, I'm going to make sure that I, I mean, I go to the NFL. And, you know, it's just, it's just the confidence I had as a kid knowing that my mom went through, you know, being single parent in, in the household. That, that fueled me. And on top of that, you know, I had good people in my life, good coaches, good men that helped me along the way. Uh, especially in, in down times when I having a dad in, in the household. I had my dad in my life, but he wasn't in the household. It's totally different. I had to be the man uh, of the household because I got my mom and my sister, and that's it, and it's me. And I'm the oldest, and my sister. And so I think uh, I had to grow up early on, and, you know, I had a lot of responsibility as a, as a, as a young kid, but I think um, I, I was able to handle it in a way where it helped me because I, it always fueled me to see my mom struggle and know that I could change that one day by how I grind it and get to where I want to go. And, and Crockett Tech is no longer there. You know, the school itself at that point was a trailer, and then it moved, and then it closed. But there's another school in the neighborhood in East Detroit where you grew up, and you regularly are a visitor back to that school, um, and you've donated uniforms and helmets. When you go back there as a Super Bowl champion um, for the first time, what will that be like, and what kind of message will that send to the current students and players oh, there? Goodness. Uh, I know it's going to be crazy. It's going to be way crazier than it's ever been. Um, and then on top of that, it's going to give uh, people belief that you know things. All things are possible. You know, if you just if you just believe. And I think uh, I think a lot of guys um, believe. Like, hey, no matter the situation, this guy came from the same place that we came from, and he made it happen. So it's no excuses on what can be done if you really believe. Brandon, I'll tell you this. Uh, Jenny Varentis is going to be there when you go back to Detroit because she's going to write about it. I think it'll be a fa- it'll be a fantastic story. It'll be so good. I've got one more one more for you, and we'll let you go. So, in the seventy two hours after you were home, you guys got home late Monday, and then before uh, you know, in, including the parade, I want you to tell me what's the craziest thing that happened to you. Maybe the craziest person you met, the craziest thing you saw, the craziest thing you did. What was it like to sort of soak everything in in Philadelphia, a place that wanted this so bad? I think the craziest thing I've experienced was a grown man coming up to me and saying how he's been waiting 44 years and then bust out crying. And I mean, like, boo-hoo crying. Like, that was the craziest thing because for a man to cry to another man, you know, that tells He's in tune with his with his feelings, and on top of that, he you know he he's really how much it really means to him that you know we got we brought it back to Philly, and I thought that was one of that was a special moment for me because I didn't really under I understand it, but you don't really understand it fully until you 
you know, meet people like that that really that's really invested in this team and all his life and want just want to be able to witness the Eagles hosting that tro- trophy on Broad Street and having a party on Broad Street. And, you know, for us to be able to bring that to him, you know, I think that was one of my crazy experiences. That that parade was as huge a sports parade as I have ever seen. Man, who <laughs> it was. And, I mean, I yelled for two hours straight. I was so tired by the time we got to the podium. I was ready to go home and go to sleep. That's how bad. That's how that's how much fun we had on that on the way to the to the stadium. I mean, we're not to the art museum where we got to talk at the end. I was so tired, man, because we yelled for two hours straight. Here's the thing: what I don't understand is you. I'm sure you've had all these parties and done all these things. You must be. It's Friday afternoon now. You've got to be totally exhausted. Oh yeah, you know I, I got some sleep on the way because uh, we had to be up at five this morning. Yeah. Um, uh, headed headed to, headed to uh, Connecticut. We out here in ESPN, and um, and you know it's just one of those things where you got to grind even more. You won, and now you got to you got a bigger grind. You got to take advantage of this opportunity right now because you know you can meet a bunch of cool people. Uh, your Super Bowl champs, everybody you know want a piece of you right now. But you got to make sure you use this time wisely to help people, and on top of that, help yourself. You know, be able to you know, advance and, and get where you're trying to go uh, for the next level. Final thing, who's the most interesting person you met or who said thank you to you? Any big stars? Um, the most interesting person I've met so far is Michael Blackson. Uh, I didn't realize I didn't, I didn't realize to this year how much of a big Eagles fan he is, really is. And uh, I've seen Kevin Hart, but I really didn't have a moment with him like I had at the after party with uh, Michael Blackson. Yeah. Hey, Brandon Graham, we really appreciate you taking time. Thanks a million, and uh, congratulations. And also, congratulations on being an inspiration for people, too. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to continue to keep doing you know, what, what I've been doing, if not better. Thanks so much, Brandon. Really appreciate it. All right, thank you, Peter. Take care. This is the MMQB Podcast. We all know the value of a good night's sleep. I'm out on the road all the time, so believe me, nothing makes me happier than being back home for a good night's sleep, thanks to Mattress Firm. They're going to make your wallet happy, too. The base for my argument is simple. Your bed budget can go further when you're shopping at America's Neighborhood Mattress Store. It's like having a touchdown and getting the game ball. They're the head coaches when it comes to mattress expertise. But know this. They're more than just mattress experts. They have a game plan that helps you transform your mattress into a bed. From adjustable bases and sheets to headboards and bedroom decor, they have you literally and figuratively covered up like your favorite cornerback. Go to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to see what deals are happening as soon as you finish this show. They even offer you a 120-night sleep trial to ensure perfection. And they have a 120-night low-price guarantee, so you know you paid the perfect price. Talk about a one-two punch. That's a knockout. So score big with a perfect bed. Head to mattressfirm.com slash podcast to get the play-by-play on how you can monumentally improve your sleep today, tonight, and tomorrow. Justin and so good. 
thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now my conversation with Bob Angelo of NFL Films. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King. Uh, I'm privileged to be joined by Bob Angelo, who most of you will not know that name. And Bob Angelo is a senior producer at NFL Films. Um, he is doing his last Super Bowl game on Sunday. And then he is going to retire from NFL films along with several of the venerable uh, people who've bought you the brought you the most memorable images in recent NFL history uh, we're recording this 2 days before Super Bowl 52 by the time you hear it um that game will be in your rearview mirrors but the reason why I wanted to do Bobby Angelo and the reason why I wanted Bob's story to be told is that over the years and I've done this job now for 34 seasons. Over the years, I have seen Bob at half of the big games I've been at, at least half. And he's always right with Brett Favre or Don Shula or Bill Parcells or you know Bill Belichick. He's with everybody. He's right there. He's in there. He's at their hip. And so... I just thought it would be great to talk to Bob a little bit about his memories. And as we head into the NFL offseason, we'll get to know somebody. You'll get to know somebody who absolutely unequivocally uh, has helped you learn about the NFL and has helped you know the NFL uh, and made it very, very enjoyable. So anyway, Bob, with that as an absolutely way too long, boring preamble, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Peter, I hope I can live up to uh, the the build-up there. Um, been doing it a long time, got lots of stories, willing to go anywhere you want to go, and some places you probably don't want to go, but uh, fire away. All right, so you have been with NFL Films for 43 years, and you have sort of a weird story of how you got there, which, when I say it's a weird story, Steve Sable, I think in many cases gave people opportunities in part because they were dogged and because they showed that they really wanted to do the job. So take me into your Steve Sable hiring you story. Well, we've got to go back a few years. It's the 1960s, and I'm watching these wonderful shows about pro football on television. 
and players are moving in slow motion, and there's this deep baritone voice narrating these things, and I'm thinking, wow. We used to go outside and play slow-mo football, and we'd imitate what NFL Films was doing. Went to college, Penn State, decided not to pursue a uh, baseball dream to play baseball. I decided to become a student. Uh, Majored in two things, journalism, philosophy. Got to that fork in the road. Philosophy, uh, my senior year, I realized not too many one-ads out there for existential philosophers. So I went the broadcast journalism route, grad school, Northwestern. As a senior at Penn State, it dawned on me that somebody has got to be writing these NFL Films productions. Now, by then, I had been doing a radio show at Penn State, went on to Northwestern Graduate School to Medill School of Journalism, and did a radio show about pro football there as well. So the first letter that I wrote to a name that I picked off the credits happened in May of uh, 1974, and that name was Steve Sable. Just seemed to be a pretty prominent name at the end of all the NFL Films productions. Sent Steve Sable a letter, said I wanted to work for NFL Films. Of course, lots of people wanted to work for NFL Films. By the time I finished grad school, Steve not only had that original letter, but he had another dozen letters that I'd written, about one a month after that. He had scripts of radio shows that I did at both Penn State and Northwestern. He had copies of articles that I'd written for my local newspaper, letters to editors of Pro Football Magazines. In short, he knew, hey, this guy's folder is this thick, and everyone else just sent a cover letter and a resume. This guy really wants to work here. So they brought me in on June 6th, 1975, on my own dime. I had to drive across the state of Pennsylvania in a car that barely made it. I called the car Skylab. It, you know, sputtered into Philadelphia and uh, took the train, actually, down to the interview at 13th Street. And at 1.35 p.m., Ed Sable, father, offered me a job at $13,000 a year. I almost crapped my pants. My dad never made $10,000 a year as a steel worker outside Pittsburgh. Wow. And I thought, my goodness, life is just going to be wonderful. And I will never forget something Steve said shortly thereafter in my employee. He said, working at NFL Films is like being in the toy department of life. And here I am 43 years later. Wow. You get employed by NFL Films. What do they hire you to do, Bob? I was hired originally as a writer-editor. Steve liked my background uh, from Northwestern. I did some radio shows. I wrote some radio documentaries. I uh, did some writing for NBC, the the Sunday morning FCC appeasement shows that nobody wants to watch or, yeah. or, or write or do. I wrote a lot of those for, you know, just for the work, just, just to have some credits. Steve liked that credit on my resume, writer for NBC in Chicago. I left it as vague as possible. I think one was about coal mining scrubbers and the other was about uh, the Polish National Alliance. I forget, but I don't forget. I actually remember all that stuff. Uh, <clears throat> but I was hired as a writer-editor. And that summer, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Seattle Seahawks, the, the two cities had been awarded franchises. So my first project was a welcome to the NFL film for Tampa and then for Seattle. I didn't really know film. But Steve said, if you can write, you can learn film. That was always his, 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 his belief, and I agree with that because he said writers are organized. Writers understand beginning, middle, and end. I can teach anybody how to find the proper images to fit the story. Bob, you, uh, you over the years have sort of, I guess I would say it best, you believe that you're not just somebody who has a camera on your shoulder 
and you sort of stand back. You you sort of the reason I think I noticed you the first time is that you really hustled to get into the nitty gritty, to get as close as you could in every situation. There have to be some times where people told you to get the hell out of there. Okay, so let's hear about a story or two with people saying, get that friggin' camera out of my face. Um, I can tell dozens of stories like that. <laughs> some with more vitriol than others. <laughs> uh, a certain coach from the New Orleans Saints, for example, not only invited me to get the camera the out of there, but... Um, was a little more animated than that, and I'll leave it there. Yeah, um, Mr. Where Bob, were you? I was on the sideline behind the bench shooting something that was going on, which is something that NFL Films is allowed to do by NFL owners' bylaws. Broadcast committee, you know, certain head coaches feel as if their sidelines belong to them and they don't want anyone else around. And head coaches generally set the tone on the sideline. The players will follow the head coach's leads. Uh, doing my job. And I told my sound man, stay right here. Don't move. And he glowered at me, and I just stared back at him like, I'll own you. Go ahead. Throw something at me. Take a shot at me. I'll own everything you have. Uh, Fortunately, it's never come to that. Um, Okay, so the guy who I think of in that regard most notably is Parcells. Bill was rough on us. Bill grew to respect what we do. Uh, but initially, Bill didn't want people in his locker room. He didn't want people crowding him in the bench area. And that, I believe, goes back to Howard Schnellenberger. At, at one point in Bill's career, he worked under Howard. Howard was that way as well. He patrolled the sidelines as if you know, he had a badge on. It was on, his fiefdom. Yeah. And no one else belonged there. And not surprisingly, a lot of the people who grew up under Bill Parcells had that same kind of feeling. Yeah. Now – Steve eventually uh, won Bill's respect, and uh, he's come around. Bill Parcells loved Steve Sable. He did. Loved him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, eventually Bill Belichick came around because, you know, Bill Belichick, the two Bills, uh, Belichick had his period under Parcells. And I don't think it's a coincidence that most of the great giant teams, the teams that won Super Bowls, had Bill Belichick as a coordinator. Yeah. Uh, Bob, uh, Belichick is interesting because I think that he, in the last few years, has sort of demonstrated a great understanding almost of a you-scratch-my-back-I'll-scratch-yours with NFL Films. He realizes that if I let NFL Films in, and I can trust them, which he certainly does, to see everything, but then... The stuff that should be unseen stays in the vault, both figuratively and literally. So why has Bill Belichick, do you think, come around? And and also, give me a Belichick story or two that you find interesting. I think he's come around for all the reasons you stated. He realizes that it's good exposure. NFL Films isn't looking to, you know dig out the, 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 dirty, the, the dirty deeds. And all NFL teams do things that aren't necessarily, uh, you know, um, rule-friendly. Right, that. right. Uh, and, you know, Bill has been known to take it as far as possible, you know, as far as possible. 
That said, I think he realizes we're a public relations firm. You know, we make good football movies. We're not digging through the dirt. We're not looking for the dirty laundry. We're, we're trying to promote the sport, trying to make people... At the same time, you know, there, there's a certain amount of truth that has to of course. exist. Yeah. We, we, we can't, you know, we, we, we... I'll give you a good example of Belichick, and then we'll, we'll get to some stories. But this is why I think Belichick understands. Because Belichick grew up with a dad who taught him everything about football. He was, he was in love with Paul Brown. He really loves all of the classic images of the game. He's got the biggest football library that he now has given to the Naval Academy. Bill Belichick loves football. So not only does he want to leave his footprints in the sand of football, he wants people to see it. And the greatest thing, in my opinion, that he does is he allows, for instance, the Malcolm Butler play against Seattle in the Super Bowl. He allows NFL films to take the Malcolm Butler play from practice that week where they practiced the play that won the weirdest Super Bowl ending in NFL history. They, and he allows that to be used, and then he allows all of his staff to dissect why they did this play, why it worked, and what they were looking for in the Super Bowl. And, you know, that's fantastic for a football nerd. I think it's fantastic for a casual football fan. But in my opinion, the trust that goes back and forth between the two entities, the Patriots and Belichick and uh, the fan, okay, it, through NFL Films, has really been well served by that. And Bill preaches situational football. That's how the Patriots play. They are prepared for any given situation in a football game. I've got two stories here. The one, of course, that is Bill's way of saying, see, we anticipated something like this occurring in the red zone at an important point in the football game, and it did. And to show that the Patriots anticipated it to the point where they worked on it in practice, that just serves Bill's purpose as well. You, you mentioned Paul Brown. That is the common ground for for uh, a lot of people and, and Bill Belichick. The fact that Paul Brown, to him, was the single most dynamic influence on professional football as a coach, as an organizer, as a mentor, as an owner, as, as, as all the things that Paul Brown was. Um, I think Bill kind of admires that. I think maybe he'd like people down the road to think, you know, I – I'm focused at my press conferences. I'm not being rude. I'm focused. I'm, I, I, I don't need distractions. I don't need silly questions. Uh, because that's how Paul Brown did business. I think Bill would like people to, when, when we did the, the, the show on him, and you see him on his boat, and he just kind of looks at the camera and says, nice, isn't it? I mean, that, that's a wonderful moment. That, that yeah. allows you into Bill's personal And when, when he goes into Giants Stadium... You know, and just looks around and sees those memories. Mm -hmm. You know, look, I I've had my issues with Belichick over the years. I haven't spoken to him in 11 years. But I so appreciate his appreciation of history. That's one yeah. of the things that I'll always think fondly of him about. Because there's a lot of people. I'll never forget. Jimmy Johnson 
the day after he wins his second Super Bowl, I'm in the car with him on Monday morning, and I'm talking to him about his place in history, and he goes, uh, and I'm about the Hall of Fame. Oh, the Hall of Fame. Pfft. You know, he was, he was just very, very flippant about all this stuff. He cares now. But, but I'm saying that Bill always has cared about his place in history and about history itself. Um, let, me, let me just ask you about a couple of things that, that I think would be good stories. I want you, if you can, Bob, to tell me the story of how Hard Knocks was invented and your role in basically the invention of Hard Knocks. An independent producer from California approached Steve Sable and said, I have an idea for a show. And it involved spending a summer camp with a pro football team. Uh, it, I don't know that it was any more detailed than that. Steve liked the idea because Steve, in his younger days, would spend a lot of time in training camp. Steve liked that whole scene. Uh, so whatever arrangement was made, this gentleman disappeared. He called me into his office and said, Ange, we're doing a show with the Baltimore Ravens. We're going to spend the whole summer in their camp, and you're it. Okay. Come up with an idea. I, I thought, well. Brian Billick, the coach. Brian Billick, the 2001. coach. 2001. 2001. And they had some really good personalities on that team. We had Shannon Sharp. We had Tony Siragusa. Ray Lewis. Rod, Rod Woodson was hanging around. So I looked at that team and I said, they just won a Super Bowl. They're going to be relaxed. I mean, I know Brian. Uh, I know that Brian quotes Shakespeare. I know that Brian is very eloquent. Uh, I know that their number one draft pick, Todd Heap, is probably going to make the team. And when Shannon finds out what Todd was paid as a signing bonus, he's going to pass out dead on the floor. And then I thought, how about other young men trying to make this team? Let's find like the third round pick and the sixth round pick and a free agent. So we collaborated with the PR staff in Baltimore and their personnel people, and we came up with three names in addition to Todd Heap, 22-year-olds trying to make it in pro football. And one in particular, I'm going blank on his name, Kenny something or other, he was a linebacker, a free agent, who was teaching underprivileged kids in California. I mean, he was the most remarkable young guy. Couldn't really play football. Jack Del Rio did everything he could to try to help this guy make the team, and the guy just couldn't get it done. But we took the show out on the road. We did some prelims. Uh, with I went to uh, Rod Woodson's house in Pittsburgh. It was pink. He had a pink house. Oh, wow. when Shannon found out about that, he gave him so much <laughs> crap. Tony Siragusa went out on his boat with him. Um, did some prelims with Ray Lewis. With why, do you think, why do you think the show worked? It worked because it was raw. What was a moment in there I've got that it. you think won the day? After the first show, with all of that profanity out there, Steve was very concerned about the league office's response to it. How Initial- much profanity was, was in the show? A lot. Yeah. A lot. I mean, it was raw. Was it bleeped or did you have it in? It was raw. Yeah. It's HBO. HBO, yeah. The second week, Steve told the editors to eliminate as much of the profanity as possible because he was still concerned about the league office's response. I would screen the completed show before it aired on Wednesday nights with the Colt hierarchy on Wednesday morning. Ravens, After, Ravens. Or, I'm sorry, Ravens. <laughs> what did yeah. I say? Colts. Colts, ooh, <laughs> uh, With the Ravens. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> After the first week, 
no issues at all. I mean, wow. Brian stood up. Uh, Ozzie Newsom stood up. The Models stood up. They all stood up and said, great show, and walked out. They couldn't have cared less about the profanity. After the second show, I will never forget, Brian Billick looked at this watered-down show and turned to me and said, great show, Bob, but we need a few more gratuitous F-words in there. <laughs> Walked out of the trailer. So I called Steve Sable and I said, Steve. I don't expect that from Billick. And I said, Steve, there's no problem here with the profanity. Let it go. And Steve said, okay. And from that point on, I think in that moment. In other words, Paul Tagliabue, nobody from the league said, get these F-bombs off my program? It's it's raw. It's real. This is what a professional football team sounds like in the summer. Right. You know, I mean, anybody who read uh, George Plimpton's book, Paper Lion, knows that, you know, why don't you get bent, you son of a bitch, was the way the Lions communicated with each other. Right, right. And Plimpton, of course, couldn't figure out what that meant at first. Then he, you know, eventually, <laughs> I think Joe Schmidt or someone explained it to him. And he, but um, that, I think from that point on, I was totally, we could go anywhere we want, wanted, do anything we wanted to do. Shannon. How was it? Was it difficult that first year when you had cameras and all the meetings and everything? Because here's the thing: now we just sort of accept hard knocks, you know. And maybe some coach occasionally might put a towel over the the, the, the camera or something like that. But in the first time, didn't you have anybody said, "Are you kidding me? You're filming this?" Again, the head coach sets the tone, Brian. We had robotic cameras in his office, and Brian invited the media in to watch him move. And he said, watch, watch. As I go over here, the robotic camera follows me. (laughs) The players see this, and okay, coach is fine with it. Plus, they had just won a world championship. They just won a Super Bowl. This was a team not feeling any pressure. So they were fine. What's the moment in that series, in that hard knock series, that you believe – uh, if if not convinced other teams it was okay to do this, or even convinced the NFL, what's the moment that you're that you're proudest of in that show in that series? The first one, yeah, the Ravens. The Ravens. Uh, probably the night that the Ravens took buses to Philadelphia to play the Eagles, and uh, Tony. Siragusa and uh, the Eagles team rep from the NFLPA walked out on the field before the game, and this was old Veterans Stadium. Right, and the he had the turf problem, and they're looking around thinking we can't play on this, and this went on and on and on, and you know this game was going to be telecast, you know regionally because it's Philadelphia Baltimore, uh, and the, the 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 more into it that they got, the more I realized this game might not happen. And at the end, the Ravens got back on their buses and, and went away, and um, there was no football game that night. Wow. Again, now, Veterans Stadium, they knew that there was going to be an Eagles preseason game, but, you know, they slopped the field together, and it just it was yeah. a mess. Yeah. And it was a dangerous mess. I mean, there, there, were, there were plenty of places for, you know, torn ACLs and, and badly right. damaged ankles right. all over that football field. And Tony and uh, – the Eagles rep, he's now, he works for the league office. Troy Vincent. Tro- Troy Vincent yeah. walked around, and after a while, I realized this, they're not just, this isn't high wind in the trees. These guys are thinking about telling their teams, we're not playing this game. And we were part of all that. We shot the you whole were right thing in the middle as of it, it transpired. Huh? And, you know, 
couldn't be anymore inside. It kind of, it sounds like a, a fairly historic moment because there probably hasn't been a lot of like hard news in in hard knocks over the years, you know. But that certainly was to cancel a preseason game over the condition of that. Yeah, that was. And then I think on that final cut day when we I had to go back to Kenny, the linebacker, and say. I, I need to do a going away interview. And he looked at me like, really? Really? I said, I'm sorry. You know, you, you agreed. We have to, I've got to talk to you before you leave here because he got cut. Seeing these guys walking out of there, you know, knowing, wow, I made the team. You know, the, 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 uh, um, the cornerback, and I can't remember their names, uh, Dwayne Missouri. He, he was a yeah. defense. He yeah. made the team, Northwestern kid, uh, a cornerback from Houston. He made the team. And Kenny didn't. And Kenny was the darling of the show. He was this, you know, sympathetic, lovable, big, muscular guy from California who was, who was teaching um, disenfranchised children who had a chance to make the world champion Ravens and just couldn't get it done. You know what? I, I, I will, I'll think, I'll say this. To me, the legacy of Hard Knocks, and I know everybody get, gets really kind of upset about this, because at the time, everybody was upset when uh, Joe Philbin cut Chad Johnson on the show. But what do you want? You want real, don't you? You want real. That's real. And did it is kind of embarrass Chad Johnson? Maybe. But, you know, I mean, what is, cu- is cutting a player nice? It's not nice. You got to do that. And that's why I think that show, even though... Over the years, some of them have worked to me. Some of them really haven't worked that well. I mean, they, but they've all shown things to some level of discomfort. My wife, Barbara, and I had her niece living with us, and she was going to esthetology school. And we were in a car, and we were driving someplace, and she said, what do you think the best reality show is on television? And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, Mine. Because you don't get voted off the island. You lose your job. You lose your chance to make a living. This is real. Yeah. So I said, mine. Bob, I want to tell you the one legacy that I think that you have in this show. Um, And there was nothing spoken. But I'm going to tell you why I thought of you when I saw this moment. Okay, one of the things you've done over the years is you've, you've stayed on moments so that uh, sometimes you don't know at the precise moment when something is going to happen. And I do want to talk about your Michael Strahan moment in a moment. But you didn't do this, but I'm just going to tell you, I thought of you when I saw this. The Houston Texans hard knocks. Bill O'Brien goes in and he informs his quarterback quarterbacks that Brian Hoyer has won the job over Ryan Mallett, okay? And he goes in, and it's a minute long. He said, hey, there's nothing's forever, who knows, blah, 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 whatever. And he stands up, he says, guys got anything? Any questions? No? All right. And he gets up, he walks out the door, and he walks down a long hallway to a set of double doors, And he opens the doors and he walks out. I bet it's 35 seconds of Bill O'Brien walking down a hallway in in the Houston Texans facility under Reliant Stadium or NRG Stadium. And he just you the camera just follows him. 
and he walks out, fade to black. I loved that moment. And I just thought of you because you are the king, in my opinion, of letting a moment happen, you know? And don't cut it off. You may not use it, but don't cut it off. Follow it to its completion. Let me give you two of my favorite examples. Good, good. The New England Patriots have a perfect season going. I think that was the perfect season year. They drive the length of the field. Randy Moss catches a touchdown pass. Game over, right? Game over. Is this against the Giants in the last game of the season? Yeah. No, this is against the Giants in the Super Bowl. Oh, in the Super Bowl. In the Super Bowl. Moss catches the touchdown pass. There it is. There's the script. Tom Brady takes him the length of the field, does what he is supposed to do. Game over, right? Yeah, sure. Eli Manning's going to take the Giants down the field. What should we do? I look around. Well, the giant offensive line is forming down there. Let's go down there and stand there. So I go down there. We set up. I'm with Mark Ritchie, my sound man, who's working this final Super Bowl with me as well. Uh, We're standing there, and Michael Strahan walks into the scene. And I kind of step out to get Michael framed properly. And he, I forget his exact words, but something to the effect of, you guys are going to get this ball, take it the length of the field. The final score is going to be 17 to 14. <laughs> and he finishes and walks away. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, fat chance. You know, I, I, I walk out of there. Well, sure enough, Tyree pins the football against his head. Plaques Burris, you know, beats the guy, man coverage. Eli tosses him a ball. Game over. And I thought, wow, that soundbite might have some impact now. <laughs> that was one. <clears throat> Recently... I'm shooting the Minnesota Vikings. Now, I've been working closely with the Vikings ever since Denny Green. We're talking 26 or 27 years of being close with one football team. I'm part of the family. I'm standing on the sidelines, miserable. Saints have a a lead. Vikings need a field goal to win the game. Vikings are out on the other side of midfield. Ten seconds left. I look out on the field, and I say, well, here are two receivers out here. So I, I ISO the two receivers. Diggs is coming toward me. Diggs gets closer to me. He leaps. He catches the ball. I kind of feel something go underneath him. And he turns. And I'm thinking, get out of bounds. And instead, he breaks it downfield. And I look, and there's not a New Orleans Saint in sight. And I thought, holy crap. That's going to be play of the year. I'm pretty sure I got it. I mean, you can see Greg Coleman's arm. He's, you know... He's the Viking radio Viking guy. radio guy on the sidelines. And then lines. another Viking runs through the frame to catch up with him to go celebrate with him in the end zone. But sure enough, it, it's, you know, it's the play of the year, and I got a sound speed shot of it. And 20 seconds or 30 seconds before that, I'm standing there just, oh, crap. It's over. It's over. My Saint, Just oh, like everybody on that team was. <laughs> my Vikings are out of it, and I've got no rooting interest anymore. And now, and I thought, wow. And that's just one of those things. A lot of things happen because I'm standing at the right place at the right time. But I'd like to think I'm standing in that place because you've done it for a long time, and, and I, you figure you and if, know if something's going to happen, this it's is gonna where happen it's going to happen here. And it, aren't you glad you weren't on the other side where Adam Thielen was single covered over the, or he was the one receiver? It was a one by three formation. So you figured that probably the three would something would happen over there. I had no idea. I'm just standing there. Right. I, I didn't have time to transition. You know, yeah. the two guys on my side. I think the tight end ran underneath. The, he did. The slot That's game right. ran a, 
he Kyle ran, Rudolph ran underneath. A short yeah. corner, and then there was yeah. a deep corner, and there he was. Yeah. And when he catches the ball, and then later when I saw it, I realized, holy crap, that safety just came in, and I feel sorry for the young man, but all he had to do was put his hands on him and shove him. Of course, if he shoves yeah. him out of bounds, they get the field goal attempt. Yeah. But when he put his hand down and started downfield, where are you going? Get out of bounds. Yeah. And then I realized, there's nobody down there. The Saints must have been in a cover, too. There's no single high. There's nobody back there. Yeah. And they win the game. Bob Angelo, uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you for uh, for uh, so long on the occasion of your retirement. Uh, I'm really going to miss you. And uh, you know what I've – I've sort of uh I've sort of learned about events like this because it's like what Paul Zimmerman once told me. I said, "Oh, so and so died." He goes, "Well, nobody's beaten it yet." And you know, the fact is we're all going to go away, you know? And we're all going to go away and there will be another generation behind us. And you know what? As much as we want to think, "Oh boy, they can't replace this." You know what? They're going to do a hell of a job. Hard Knocks is so much better now than when I produced and directed it. There is so much more artistry in it now. The cinematography is far more precise. Every, I mean, everything gets better. People said, you're going to miss this. I mean, we're going to miss you. I said, NFL Films has so many good people in the ranks. They have access to so many more. Nah, you're not going to miss me much at all. They will miss you. But you know what? Life will go on as it will with all of us. Bob, I, uh, I got a great deal of admiration for how you've done your job, not only because you have reverence for football, but you also, you may not think this, but I think you have reverence for journalism because you are not going to tell a story that is horse crap. You know, you're not going to mislead people. You might not be able to tell the whole story, but you're not going to mislead people, and that's one of the things I've really admired you over the years for. Thank you, Peter. Pleasure. Thanks to my guests, Brandon Graham of the Philadelphia Eagles and Bob Angelo of NFL Films. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to the other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Chris Mortensen, and Drew Brees. You can find these on the MMQB.com, on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsor, Mattress Firm. Please support Mattress Firm the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. For 25 years. Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois.